not chosen for this situation, but appropriate. Psalm 13, this is the word of God. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. In Hebrew, the title of the book of Psalms is Praises. Praises, plural. It's it's the dominant theme of the book. It's a book of praise. And when you read Psalms 1 and 2, you recognize that Psalms 1 and 2, without uh, superscriptions, are, are the two Psalms you need to read to anchor the theology of the entire book. The first Psalm is all about the blessedness of walking in God's path, meditating on His Word, in contrast to the wicked, who are quickly destroyed and vanquished by God. And you read things in Psalm 1 like, You will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. You read things like, Whatever he does prospers. And you're pretty happy. Because Psalm 1 sounds like a pretty good psalm in terms of the blessing of your life. And then in the literary inclusio, Psalm 1-1 starts blessed. Psalm 2 ends with blessed is the one. So they're to to be read together. Psalm 2 is about the blessing that comes to those who submit to the Davidic king. The anointed one. The one who is God's son, Psalm 2-7. And so what you end up with is you end up with coming into the book of Psalms with the understanding that if if you obey God's law and submit to God's anointed king, you will be blessed. This, of course, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1, perfectly. And he is the fulfillment of the Davidic king, Messiah typology of Psalm 2. So Psalm 1 and 2 really are actually driving you to Jesus if you read canonically. However, the single most uh, common genre in the book of Psalms is the genre of lament. 
Now, this is not the majority number. There are, there are many different uh, genres. So it's not that lament psalms are more than half of all psalms, but if you take one genre, there are more lament psalms than any other type in the book of Psalms. A book called Praises. A book that starts out by saying, if you submit to God's word and, G- and, and the Messiah, the anointed king, you will be blessed in all you do. Blessed is the one, Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the one, Psalm 2, 12. That brackets it together. This is your pathway to blessing. And then you immediately, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 5, lament, 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 lament. You hit Psalm 13. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, well, what would it be like if this book was about suffering instead of blessing? I mean, where are the blessings? What's going on here? I mean, you have Psalm 8, and we're all familiar with that one. How majestic is your name in all of the earth? You know, what is man that you are mindful of him, etc., etc. But, but why all the suffering? What is going on here? This is the context of blessing. Where are the blessings? The book of Psalms is about your entire life. The book of Psalms will end with a mighty doxology of praise the Lord. Let everything that has, that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's where you end up. But you don't start there. You get there. You, get, you start with submission to the law of God and the anointed Messiah. You end with everything in creation praising God. But there's a lot that you will go through between Psalm 1 and 2 and Psalm 150. Because we live in a fallen world, a lot of it is going to break your heart. The only way to avoid having a broken heart is to decide not to love. The only way to live in this world without tears is to simply decide not to care about other people. But if you love and if you care, then you will experience pain. Because it is a fallen world. Because you're good Canadians, I trust. Last week we had a, had a visiting American, so I, mean, I don't know if there's a visiting American here this week, but, but you're all good Canadians. So you will remember the Canadian troubadour. Oh, Megan! You, oh, yeah, I like, are, don't you have citizenship yet? Well, is that, is that, um, no, 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 no. Listen. When you pick up her prayer card, just make that note. Pray for Canadian citizenship for Megan. Yes, Megan, we're so glad you're here. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, every tribe, kindred, nation, and on earth. And so you're, you're our international worshiper. We're so thankful that you're here. What on earth was the point? Okay, you, actually, and you, with where you're from in the States, you know this better than any of us, actually. Um, November 10th, 1975. What happened? Many things. It was before I was born, just so you know. This is a history lesson. The Edmund Fitzgerald sank in Lake Superior. Okay? Yes? You familiar with this? I'm oh, sorry, I won't send you make it. I'll just moving on. <laughs> moving on. It was an American ship. It was the, the biggest ship at that time ever to sail the Great Lakes. Uh, it had a cargo of 26,000 tons of iron ore. Late November. The reason that Canadians recall it is because of our Canadian troubadour, Gordon Lightfoot, right? How many of you know this song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald? Fantastic song. If you ever want to know like, what happened to good music, like, 
I don't know. But people used to tell stories. Like, it actually is the whole story of the song, or of the ship. It's incredible. From, like, where it was milled to where it was going, it is utterly incredible. I'm tempted to sing it. <laughs> but there's enough lament in the world, so we won't do that. 29 people on board, all of them perished. It starts out, you, you, you'll be familiar with this. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchigumi. It's great. That's great. Great line. The lake, they say, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. And there's an inclusio. The song, six minutes later, basically ends that way, too. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down the big lake they call Gitchigumi. Superior, not the lake. Now it's superior. Superior, they say. Never gives up her dead when the, sky, when the gales of November come early. So there's a bit of a switch at the end, but close enough to tie the whole thing together. And so, yeah, there's just great, great lines throughout it. It's, it's fantastic storytelling. Right? Uh, in terms of the bravado of, and psychology of, of sailors, several times the old cook came on deck and said, fellows, it's too rough to feed you. 7 p.m., a main hatchway caved in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. The captain wired in. He had water coming in, and the good ship and crew were in peril. And later that night, when the lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And this is the line. Does anyone know... Where the love of God goes, when the waves turn minutes to hours. The searchers all say they'd have made Whitefish Bay if they'd put 15 more miles behind her. That part's just for free. The line is about the love of God in the minutes and the hours. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn minutes to hours? You know why that's so perceptive? It's so perceptive because he gets the accent right. The accent is on time. The accent is on temporal experience. Here, the psalmist is not crying out why. The psalmist is crying out how long. Those are two distinct questions. Where is the love of God when time is dragging on? Where is the love of God when the minutes feel like hours? How long, Lord? How long will? How long must? How long will? Four times the psalmist puts the accent not on why, but how long. It's a question of duration of time. And it's the uncertainty. And if you have experienced something of this, or if you have talked to lots of people, one of the things that you will discover is for many people, they feel like they could get through virtually anything if they just knew for how long they'd feel the way they feel. If they just knew how long this process was going to take, they could endure it. One of the things that you find actually interesting enough is that a lot of studies show that um, for people who are diagnosed with terminal diseases, Often, the most difficult time is the time in between the testing and getting the results. Because they just don't know. When you know what you're facing, 
when you have a prognosis, you can move into it. You, you, you can confront it. You can accept it. You can be angry. You, you, you can at least engage with it as it is. But it's when you don't know what, exactly what it is. You don't know how long is it going to be. That's when people really struggle. Notice also the question is addressed to the Lord. How long, Lord? Probably, uh, older translations will rightly uh, keep the word O in there. How long, O Lord? It's a mode of engagement. How long, O Lord? This is not atheism. This is religious struggle. And one of the things that we need to be very honest about is actually being a believer in God, far from eliminating all suffering, creates some. Because one of the things that you now have is, is, is you, you're wrestling with, why is God allowing this? Where did the love of God go? God could change this. Doesn't God see my sorrow? Why doesn't God act? Where is he? How long, Lord, do I cry out to you? How long do I suffer? I I don't doubt that you're there, but I don't understand what you're doing. So often, actually, for believers, although there is comfort in their relationship with God, it's precisely because they have a relationship with God that they struggle in particular ways. It's not a denial of his existence, but it is wondering what it is that God is doing and for how long. Notice the language. How long, Lord, verse 1, will you forget me forever? How long? Verse 2, I wrestle with my thoughts day after day. Those questions. Will you forget me forever? Lord, every day, day after day, I wake up and I'm confronted with this circumstance. I'm confronted with this pain. Why? How long is this going to continue? And the psalmist lists three struggles. The first is with God. Will you forget me? How long will you Hide your face from me. Both of these are actually technical negations of covenant promise. Remember the great priestly blessing? May God's face shine his face upon you. Lord, you're supposed to shine your face upon me. But you've hidden it. You've hidden your face from me. Covenant language is the Lord remembers his people. But here the Lord has forgotten the psalmist. So what the psalmist is doing is saying, hey, we have, God, we have a covenant relationship. The, the blessing is the presence of your face. The, the, the blessing is you remember me. That's the covenant. But we're in this covenant relationship and I don't see your face and you've forgotten me. How long can this continue? When are you going to fulfill the covenant? We're in a relationship. There are promises here, Lord. How long is this going to go on? But then there's also internal problems. 
So the first is with God. Will you forget me? Will you hide your face? But now it's internal. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? That's inside of the psalmist. How long must I have sorrow in my heart? That's inside of the psalmist. So now the psalmist is, is crying, saying, Lord, not only do I not know what's going on with you, inside of myself, I'm in agony. I don't like how I'm thinking. I, I don't like all the things that are running through my mind, not just questions, but I, have, I, have concern, I don't know what's going on. There are things that I'm thinking about you and about myself that, that really aren't very edifying and pleasant, but I can't stop the cycle of my thoughts. Lord, how long is this going to continue? My heart is breaking and my thinking is fractured. But then there are also external enemies. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Interestingly enough, and thankfully, the enemy is unspecified. We don't know exactly who the enemy is in this context, which then does give us a little bit of license or to not to make it a metaphor, but to apply it widely so that there are enemies that we will face. People, circumstances, etc. This isn't just the psalmist being, as a psalm of David, this isn't just David being attacked by one person in, 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 that we can identify and say, well, we're not in that situation, it doesn't apply to us. It, the enemy is, is left purposefully blank. The enemy is there, but the enemy that you are facing may be different. This is all very different from sort of, you know, interpreting David and Goliath as sort of a abominable fashion where it's like, well, David killed his giants, so you can kill your giants too. That's nonsense in terms of interpreting the text. It's not all the text is saying. But here, you can actually read through the text more properly and understand that, yes, there are enemies that we will face too. So what do you do? What do you do when you are in these sorts of circumstances? Well, Job's wife said, don't be a fool, curse God and die. Many of us, and this is the fault of our own sin heart, or sinful nature, because we are not willing to be vulnerable out of pride. But it is also the fault of the community and the church community that we have cultivated an environment in which people feel that they must present a certain face in public. So that people are actually not allowed to grieve deeply unless they're isolated. If you want to cry, cry by yourself. If your heart is breaking, stay home. Because this is the place where we praise the Lord. Not deeply, but flippantly where no matter what your circumstances are, you must come in with a smile on your face saying, isn't it good to be here today? Aren't you so happy to this morning to worship the Lord? The funeral of yesterday doesn't matter. The tragedy in your home relationally doesn't matter. Put a smile on your face. That's how we worship God. So then people are also bullied into being inauthentic. Because it's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable to come in to worship God with pain. 
Although I would suggest that if you read the book of Psalms properly, probably some of the most times of deepest engagement with God are actually precisely in those times of trial. So for us in our evangelical churches, we might not say this, but, the, the, but what people get, the idea people get is, well, what, the way you, you deal with this is you ignore it. You put on a mask. You show up with your evangelical Sunday morning face on, and then you go home and cry if you need to. But, but, but don't disturb what we're doing here in our flippancy by actually representing a spirituality that engages God in pain. Other people simply get bitter and cynical about life. What good does it do to follow the Lord? Think of the elder brother syndrome in the parable of the prodigal son. Lord, er, Father, I've been slaving away for you for all these years. And this is what you do for the prodigal? What about me? What, do I, what have I gotten from all of this? So some people just shut down. They, they simply, they cauterize their heart. Some people actually walk away. Or they just temper their expectations and decide that they'll, they, they won't get close to God. They're not going to get close to other people. It's just too much. The right response, of course, is what the psalmist does. The psalmist wrestles with God. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go except God? God, you're there how long? But, but I'm not walking away, and I can only do that in a, because in my deepest part of my heart, I trust that you're not walking away either. That's why I engage with you. You are the living God. You are my covenant God. I don't understand what's going on, but I will not let you go. It's like Jacob wrestling at the brook. I will not let you go. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. I am not going anywhere. Look on me is obviously the reverse of God hiding his face. In verse 1. Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? Look on me. See me. Here I am. And answer me. That is, give me a favorable response. I'm asking you questions. You're my God. Answer me. Give light to my eyes. Allow me to see. But also, in Hebrew, brightened eyes are a metaphor for joy. So he's saying, allow me to see, but also let, give light to my eyes. Help me understand, but help me also to rejoice. Bring me to a new set of circumstances. Or even if I'm in these circumstances, give me a new orientation in them. Lord, I don't want my enemies to gloat. Now, interestingly enough, I think this is tied not just to being something personal, but it's tied to covenant. Remember when Israel sinned many times in the wilderness with Moses, and God said, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses said, no, Lord, don't do that, lest your enemies rejoice lest it reflect badly on your power. Keep the people preserved for your name's sake. I think that's the sentiment here too. It's personal, but it's far more than personal. It, it's Lord, if the enemies of your people were... Now remember, this is David. This is, the, this is the first Davidic king. I mean, he's not a Davidic king. He's David the king. 
And so if David is defeated by God's enemies, then the covenant king of Israel is lost. And so David is pleading for his own sake, but also because there are other things at stake here. There's a nation, and more importantly, there's God's glory to be concerned about. And I think sometimes, actually, this is, this is, this is where you start getting close to healing in some ways. Is that, this is, this is, this is difficult, I understand. And, and there are phases, there are times, I understand that. But guys, honestly... You'll, you'll never, never, you'll never get through certain things unless you realize that the point of your life is to glorify God. And God can great, get great glory through your life and bless you and work for your good through really hard things. But if you think that the covenant is all about God entering into covenant with you so you can feel good and be happy, you're going to be sadly disappointed. And that's where all of a sudden the expectations which you brought to the table which were false can begin to generate bitterness and hardness of heart. God, I didn't sign up for this. And God says, no, no, but that's not my covenant. At the end of the day, sometimes the only things we need to we need to pray that God will orient us to His glory more than anything else. And if you can see that, so if you can pray, Lord, for Your name's sake, deliver me. You'll begin to approach a place of holisticness. And be able to enter into the purposes of all that God is doing. That does not mean that we are robotic. One of the cruelest things people do is that when people are genuinely suffering, they come along and, and sort of and quote Romans eight twenty eight. Oh well, yes, your your heart's broken, but all things work together for good, you know. Well, yes, they probably do know that. They probably know it as well as you do. So it's not helpful to say it, is it? But there's a time and a place. The reality is, I am beginning to believe more and more and more and more as time goes on, that a lot of us, I won't say us, I will say me, I would probably be a lot more effective if I shut up more and just gave people hugs more often. Because that's often what people need. They need, they need a hug. They need to let someone cares. They don't need your wisdom. You ever notice that when you don't know what to say, you often invariably say the wrong thing, not the right thing. You ever notice that you've no one, I've never had anyone who sort of walked into a situation and going, man, I sure didn't know what to say, but I nailed it. Like, like it's always going like, I didn't know what to say. I wish I kept my mouth shut. Like, we never just randomly get the right thing in those circumstances. But I trust in your unfailing love. The grammar in, in English here has been, is, 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 the translation is very good. The Hebrew grammar puts but I in the emphatic position in the sentence. But I. I don't care what anyone else does in these circumstances. This is what I'm going to do. This is like Joshua. Hey, listen, there's a God to serve. 
you do what you want. As for me and my house, this is what we're doing. That's what the psalmist is saying. You do what you want. As for me, but I, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust. Trust is probably one of the biggest words there is in all of the world. I trust. The reality is, because it's a sinful, fallen world, you can't say that to too many people. But I trust in your unfailing love, God. That's covenantal language, too. Your chesed is never going to disappoint me. Your covenant love is never going to let me down. I trust in your love. That's an amazing thing. I trust in your love. And you know what's so beautiful about this, though? The emphatic heart commitment, but I trust in your unfailing covenant love. You know what's so amazing? Because if you've read the first four verses of the psalm, you know that the psalmist is not in a good set of circumstances right now. This is not, my goodness, Lord, is it? There's a new luxury car in the driveway. I trust in your love. This is not, oh, Lord, good news. I'm just rejoicing. I trust in your unfailing love. This is, Lord, I, I'm on my face. I can't cry anymore. I've wept myself dry. Day after day, I've been in agony. Day after day, you've been distant in terms of my emotional connection with you. Day after day, I've struggled with my thoughts. I've struggled with my heart. I'm just in utter spiritual and emotional and probably physical agony. You can't be that emotional and feel good physically. It's not possible. So, Lord, in the midst of my agony and also not having a resolution to this situation. Notice you don't have a few verses in between verses 4 and 5 where there's special revelation from God and God says, okay, okay, so this is uh, 22 more days, David. That's how long. And then you're fine. He's still utterly in the dark as to how long this is going to be. But he's taken his eyes off of his circumstances and vitally he's also taken his eyes off introspection. And he stopped looking inside of his heart and he stopped looking inside of his own mind. And what he's doing is he's looking at God. And when you look at God, you are empowered to trust in God's unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. He hasn't even experienced it yet. There, there's no movement from verse 4 to 5 where something big has happened. Nothing's changed. The circumstances are exactly what they were. But his heart, now notice, the heart is the deepest part of who you are. Verse 2, day after day I have sorrow in my heart. Verse 5, my heart. The deepest part of who I am is transitioning into rejoicing in what? God's salvation. Well, how can you rejoice in God's salvation when you're in the midst of utter agony? 
Well, the only way you can is if you embrace his covenant, unfailing love. Because he is your covenant God, because he loves you unfailingly, of course he will save you. He can't do anything else. He will save you. And because of that, you rejoice now, even though now you're still in the circumstances from which you need salvation. I will sing. The grammar of this is future. I will sing the Lord's praise. Amazing statement. This is the anchor in the midst of the difficulty. There is a day coming when the sun will rise and the night will be over. And on that day, you will sing. On that day, you will praise. I do not mean in any way to diminish anything that anyone has gone through. But I promise you, if you know Jesus, you are going to start in Psalm 1, obeying God's word. You are going to submit yourself to the anointed Messiah, the King. And you are going to go through lament after lament after lament after lament. And you can write your own lament. Everyone is different. But I promise you, if you know Jesus, you will end at Psalm 150. You will. Even if you end your life in this world with utter, with, with nothing but an utterly shattered heart and psyche and body. You do realize this world isn't, isn't the only one, right? I, I, I just, just, we live so badly because we don't actually believe there's an eternity to come. We make such, such foolish choices. We cause ourselves so much agony because we actually just don't really believe that one day we go into a, a new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness, where, where righteousness dwells and where there is no more sorrow, and where we will actually rejoice in each other and in God our Savior. We just, we just don't really actually believe that. We're always hedging our bets, trying, trying to have it now, and, and the, no. I will sing the Lord's praise. You will. Often, in this world, even if you don't see how that's possible, God often will get you through very difficult things in this world and you will praise him in this world. But in the end, you will sing his praise for all of eternity. Why? For, that's the reason, for he has been good to me. That's past tense. I will sing in the future because he has good, been good to me in the past. And many of us have experienced very difficult things where we can say, yes, I know what it's like to look back at a Psalm 13 experience and say, I didn't see how God was being good to me then, but he always was. He always was. And he brought me to a place of singing his praise in the future. Anchor that. You don't know what the rest of today is going to bring. Let, let alone what the rest of your life is going to bring. 
but God has been good to you in the past. No matter how you feel, no matter what you're going through, He's good to you today. Trust Him. And He will be good to you in the future and into eternity. And you will praise. So what we need to do is we need to remember that. We need to orient ourselves to that. But we also desperately, in my judgment, desperately in our churches, need to legitimate people being in verses 1 through 4 before they come out in verses 5 and 6. They'll get there by God's grace. But let them be in verses 1 through 4 first. I'm going to ask you musicians to come up and lead us in a song of praise.